Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us. In the name of Jesus, amen. And so we continue tonight by looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And so far, we've seen congregations affected by some form of besetting sin or external evil. We saw Ephesus losing sight of her first love, uh, being more preoccupied with being right all the time rather than receiving the gospel that saves them. Smyrna had been thrown into cultural obscurity and weakness, and this threw them into poverty and even into prison. Pergamum was facing political persecution for their unwillingness to participate in the legally mandated pagan worship of the day. And Thyatira was beset with temptations by a false teacher, a Jezebel, who was leading people into lawlessness. And to each of these, there has been a call from Jesus to repentance, to greater faith, to trust in the gospel, to endurance, and into hope. They're told to cling to Jesus, and they are told to endure their suffering with patience. They're told to stand firm against temptation, and they were told to rely ultimately on the forgiveness of sins. And so tonight, we, we remember these things as we step into Sardis. And on the outside, looking in, Sardis does not seem to have any problems. They're the vibrant, thriving congregation. They're not beset with obvious sins. They are not being persecuted in any unusual way. There's no infighting in Sardis. There's no doctrinal division. They're not being attacked by false teachers and sectarians. It seems like there's peace in Sardis. They don't really have the problems that the other congregations had. And Jesus' words to the congregation in Sardis are some of the harshest of all the letters to the seven churches. Jesus refers to the seemingly vibrant and healthy congregation as both dead and dying. He says they've soiled their garments, and he's going to come against them like a thief. And the question is, well, why? What's going on in Sardis? And if you think about it in today's term, this congregation would have maybe been considered the success story. It's the one that the district presidents would be hailing the pastors of these congregations as visionary leaders. Everybody would look at that one and say, oh, that's the healthy congregation. That's the good church. They'd be called in to consult with other congregations on how to better manage their church affairs. They would be the congregations that are attractive have lots of programming, have the big, beautiful sanctuary, have the gigantic budget, and have a packed house every Sunday morning. They would be the church that had the huge signature in the community that's well-respected and loved by everyone. It's the call that most of the pastors kind of evilly, but also sinfully, dream about. It's what every congregation thinks they ought to be. Loved, respected, big, capable. And perhaps if we think about it, 
This might give us some of the clues about what's going wrong in Sardis. They weren't suffering. There were no divisions. The community tolerated them. They had a good reputation. And you have to ask the question, how on earth is that possible? How is it possible for a congregation to have the reputation of being alive in a city that was an industrial hub for the Roman provincials? How is it possible for a congregation to be regarded as healthy and non-controversial and a center for imperial cultic worship? There's only one way this is possible. And maybe we know it all too well as we examine the state of the church around us today. The Word of God was not the formative guide and rule for the church in Sardis. Their lives were not orientated to revolve around the Holy Scriptures. And the identifying markers of the church were not the gospel of Jesus dying for sinners, but their healthiness and their reputation. Their thriving congregation looked like the world. It sounded like the world. The gospel was not being preached. And this is what Jesus is saying when he rebukes them, when he says, I know your works, you have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Did you, did you hear that? Remember what you received and keep it. Jesus says in Luke, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you truly are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The word keep, as in keep my word, is from the Greek word teros, which means to guard against loss and ruin. What were they to keep? What were they to guard against losing and ruining? It was the word of the gospel. The truth that sets them free from sin. That's what they were to guard in their hearts. That's what they were to never forfeit or lose. And when Jesus preaches that the truth will set you free, he means the truth of a savior dying for their sins. You know, when Jesus says that in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free, the Jews who heard it were indignant. They balked at the idea that they were somehow not free. They say, we're not slaves to anyone. That wasn't really true. They were slaves to the Romans. They had been slaves throughout history. But they were very much bound by something worse than some foreign nation coming in and taking them. It was they were slaves to their own sin. 
And that describes the fallen state of humanity. In Genesis 6, we read how our hearts are so inclined to evil. It says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made men on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. In Romans 3, we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so there's only one way to remedy this. There's only one way to deal with the fallen hearts and the bondage to sin that human beings have, and it's for the death of Jesus given to sinners. We are given this death through faith. It is faith that unites the Christian to Christ. It is the faith that justifies sinners, and it is by faith that you receive the full and complete atonement for your sins. That's what St. Paul teaches in Romans when he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves to righteousness. We are made free from sin by having faith in Christ. But what is Sardis doing? Well, they were ignoring, neglecting, and abandoning the gospel. It was not being preached. Sin was not admonished. Sinners were not comforted. The death of Jesus was not being proclaimed to console sinners, making them into saints. Apart from this gospel, they were still bound by their own sins and the judgments that these sins bring upon them. And so what happened? That he experienced some sort of generational drift where, where the children kept the tradition of going to church but not the faith that accompanied it? Or did the gospel somehow stop being relevant to the congregation because they thought they had achieved perfect sanctification? Or they thought they had figured out how to get their niche into the community? Or did they fall back into the law of Moses like many did in those days, binding consciences with the old covenant of circumcision? And Sinai. Well, it could have been any of these things. But what matters is that they started out strong. They had something good. But after a few generations, the church had lost the preaching of the gospel. And Jesus himself says that their congregation, though everyone in the world looks at them and says they're thriving, Jesus says they're dead. They kept all the outward indicators, but the very thing that had made them holy was lost. This is a lot like Jesus' parable at the wedding banquet, where the, the master must fill the feast, and all those who are invited refuse the invitation, and so the master fills the feast with people off the street. And the feast is filled, and everyone enjoys the great gifts that are being given to them. They enjoy the feast and the fellowship and the company and all the, all the wonderful delicacies they get to eat and drink. That is until one man is found to be at the feast without a wedding garment. He's not clothed in the garment that the master had provided in the feast. And the master sees this, and it doesn't go well. It actually says in the text, it says, But when the king came to look at his guest, he saw there a man with no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. 
And so the king says to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And why, why was that man bound and thrown out from the feast? Well, because he wasn't covered in the proper attire. And so it is with everyone who would claim a place in God's church apart from the gospel of forgiveness. That is the garment that we are covered with. Remember what it says in Galatians. It says, whoever is baptized into Christ has put on Christ. And later in the book of Revelation, we're given the image of the church in triumph. And what are they wearing? Well, they're wearing the right robes of Christ's righteousness. As the elder around the throne of God tells John, he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The congregation in Sardis was leaving their white garments behind. They were leaving their righteousness behind. And so do many churches in our days as they seek to be justified in just about any other way than the blood of Jesus. They'll cover themselves with soiled and disgusting garments and call themselves beautiful and righteous. This is what St. Paul uh, criticizes. St. Paul calls them something else, actually, as he talks about these soiled garments. He calls all of his so-called righteousness, the righteousness other than that of faith, he calls it scubalon, which roughly translated means, we translate it in English at least, as rubbish, but more accurately it means manure or the more rude version of the word manure. It says, he says this, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look at those who will mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as scubalon, as rubbish, as manure, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having any righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. As the world will tout its righteousness, its scubalon, its filth, it does not save, it does not cover sin. And so what confidence in the flesh are we deluded to believe in? Perhaps it revolves around all the kind of social fervor of the day. Some say that they're righteous because they support the marginalized. Some say they're righteous because they, they vote conservative. 
Some say that they're righteous because they live moral lives. Some say they're righteous because they have the, that perfect record of church attendance. Some say they're righteous because their kids have 4.0 and uh, are in all the honors classes. And none of these things are particularly bad. All of these things can be warped and twisted into evil. They're all tainted with sin that can bind us to hell. Pastors can get caught up in this and how they preach. They can see the needs that are not being met in the church and society at large. They can see some of the spiritual weaknesses and sicknesses of their flock and meaning well they can begin to preach heavily about all these issues, which is good. It's good to preach what the Word has to say about everything. But all too often, sometimes they do it at the expense of preaching the gospel. And in this, inadvertently sometimes, sometimes inadvertently, they warp and twist and confuse law and gospel so that people begin to think that they're righteous so long as they're doing all the stuff their pastor's telling them to do. As long as they agree with what the pastor preaches about the social issues, about the politics, about marriage and family, about church governance, about financial responsibility, and whatever else, they set their consciences at ease and their pride begins to swell. And the white garments that they wear slowly get to get little stains and spots and soil. This is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Back in Jesus' time, they, they reduced righteousness down to an attainable set of behaviors and, and rules. Their, their hearts were sinful, but it didn't matter. All that matters is that they had the outward appearance of godliness. We know what Jesus has to say about this. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. In another place, he condemns the Pharisee, uh, praises the publican. We remember that. As the Pharisee praised in the temple, praising himself for all his outward works of righteousness, but the publican, he beats his chest. And he says, Lord, atone for me, a sinner. Only one left the temple justified before God. And guess who it was? It was the sinner. See, Sardis had in its own way become a congregation of Pharisees. And so Jesus calls them out. He calls them to repentance. He says, return to what you had at first and guard it. And so should we. Whenever the gospel and all that it gives us stops being the highest and greatest good in our eyes, we must repent. Whenever we begin to view ourselves as anything other than sinners who need the atoning blood of Jesus, we must repent. Whenever the reception of the Lord's Supper, the hearing of the Word, and the continual promises of our baptism begin to be about anything other than our desperate need for renewal, regeneration, heavenly pardon, we must repent. Whenever we become confident in ourselves, our strength, our own goodness, our own wisdom, we must repent. We must do so because if we do not, we might find ourselves outside of heaven with soiled garments. We will be cast into the outer darkness 
where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, that's hell, by the way. But to those who guard the word, to those who rejoice in the gospel that atones for their sin, they will not be found faithless on the last day. Jesus says of the few in Sardis who have not abandoned the gospel that their robes will remain white and they will walk with him. Their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. Jesus will boldly confess them before his Father. He says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You know what that means? That means that as we cling to Jesus in this life, and rejoice in knowing that in his name we find life, that we find holiness, that we find hope, that we find comfort, well, Jesus clings to our name. We cling to him. He clings to us. We are so bound together as we wear his righteousness as our outer garment and we bear his names in our life that we are inseparable from our Lord and our God. As we are atoned for, as we are made holy, as we are cared for by our God, our lives are rightly orientated. And so we cling to Jesus. Cling to what he has done. Cling to your justification in his blood. Cling to the forgiveness that you have in him, in his work, in his righteousness, in his care, in his love for you. Cherish and rejoice in his gospel that is forth the forgiveness of sins. Boldly go before your Lord saying, yes, I am a sinner. And rejoice in the freedom then that you have from your sin. Rejoice in knowing that you have become a servant of a greater master and that you have been given a new heart and a new life and a new garment of righteousness that you will continually wear. And rejoice in the day that will come where that will never be soiled. Do not cast that aside for anything else, but hold fast and patiently endure all things. Suffer all things, but never compromise the one thing that is needed. Guard it so that it's not spoiled with our own rubbish. Look to Jesus Christ alone for your sins to be atoned for and to prove you are righteous before his Father in heaven. Let the gospel be the central fixture in your life. Let it be the central fixture in our congregation. Let it be the thing that the world knows us for. Let it be the thing that we're despised for adhering to. Let it be the thing that we broadcast before the world. Because that's what saves us. It's what saves you. And it's what saves the ones that we love. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we know that in our weakness we often lose sight of the one thing that is needful as our sinful flesh is easily distracted and our wandering hearts often seek satisfaction in ourselves rather than in Jesus. Forgive us when we stumble and guard us in the true faith so that we guard the gospel that has been planted in our hearts by your word. Help us to keep the true faith 
so that we rejoice in the salvation of our souls as our names will never be blotted out from the book of life. In the name of Jesus, amen.